0: By the early 1660s, the Congregationalist Fathers of the Massachusetts Bay Colony were having to pay attention to a troubling reality. When the colony was founded in 1630, they had intended that their colony would be a city on a hill. John Winthrop famously proclaimed that that was their ambition, to be a city on a hill. And the goal was that they would be a society in in which both church and colony were ruled by visible saints, that is, by those who gave evidence of conversion. Founders of the colony were Puritans, that is, Congregationalist dissenters from within the Church of England. They believed in infant baptism. They had their children baptized and expected that in due time these children would make profession of conversion to Christ, and then, as visible saints, they would occupy their position in church and in colony. But... By the early 1660s, a problem confronted them. The historian George Marsden framed the question this way. What happened if those baptized children grew to adulthood... ...but were never certifiably converted... ...even though they might be upstanding in other respects? So the children of these halfway church members be baptized. And so the the question was... ...if the, the children of the first generation didn't profess conversion then what was their status with regard to the church? Were they allowed to present their children, even though they themselves might not profess to be converted? And so what were they supposed to do? If the answer was no, then the New England dream of having a society ruled by visible saints perpetuated from one generation to the next would seem to dry up pretty quickly. And so a Congregational synod of 1662 reached agreement on the question, and the agreement was known as the Halfway Covenant, and the agreement was that the children of these halfway church members could be baptized in hopes of perpetuating uh, the, the Christian line in New England. Now, to us as Baptists, this is obviously a completely irrelevant issue and a completely irrelevant question and may sound like a bit of a bizarre problem, right? This, this, this may sound really far afield from us. We don't have any halfway church members here. You're either a church member or you're not a church member. We don't baptize anyone's infant. That simplifies a whole lot in this regard. But I mentioned the history of the halfway covenant because it raises an issue that sometimes occurs. It's very unfortunate, but sometimes it happens that the children of godly people are not godly. Now, obviously, Christian heritage is a great blessing. Many of us have had firsthand experience of that great blessing. One's background, though, and one's family heritage is no guarantee that they themselves will believe the gospel. And when this happens, then the ground that has been gained and the advantages had by the previous generation are lost and are of no advantage to those who follow. And such was the situation of the people of Israel following the death of Joshua and the death of those other leaders who had served with him. And this is the situation that is outlined for us in our text for this evening beginning in Judges chapter 2 verse 6. So tonight we'll be beginning in Judges chapter 2 verse 6 and we'll read down through chapter 3 verse 6. Our writer writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, when Joshua had dismissed the people, sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 and they buried him. In the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and the Ashtaroth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them, For evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges, who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods, and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them. ...from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning... ...because of those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But it came about that when the judge died... ...that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers... ...in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant... ...which I commanded their fathers... "...and has not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died... ...in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not." So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who live in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon, as far as lebo hamath They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Now this chapter gives us a bird's eye view of what happened. Generally speaking, during the days of the judges, after the passing of Joshua and the passing of the elders who had survived him, we told in verse 10 that there arose another generation who did not know the Lord nor the work that he had done for Israel. And the point of verse 10, I think, is not to say that these people knew absolutely nothing about the Lord, but to say that they did not have saving knowledge of the Lord. This is the same statement that is made about Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the priest, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Certainly, Hophni and Phinehas knew about the Lord. They were, they were priests. They knew the sacrificial system. They certainly knew at least parts of the law. They didn't follow the law, but certainly they knew at least part of what was written in it. But they did not know the Lord. They did not trust the Lord. They did not turn From their sins, and the same may be said of this generation, which arose after Joshua's generation. There was likely some knowledge of the Lord that remained. The official worship of the tabernacle in Shiloh probably continued, but nevertheless, they did not know the Lord in the sense that they did not trust him, nor did they obey him. And we see how this played out in this period of their history in the following verses. So what happened? Well, they turned aside from serving the Lord. They served the Baals, the gods of the nations who surrounded them. And in doing so, they provoked the Lord's anger. The Lord gave them into the hands of the nations, these very nations that they did not drive out, the nations whose gods they worshipped, the nations with whom they intermarried. They gave their daughters to these men. They took their daughters for themselves Forsaking the Lord, they could no longer stand before their enemies, as we find in verse 15, or, I'm sorry in verse 14, and as stated in verse 15, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. They did evil, the Lord rewarded them with evil. And this was in accordance with what He had warned them. And so we find in Leviticus 26:17, the Lord says, "I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you." And you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And Deuteronomy chapter 38 and chapter 32 also speak of this phenomenon of being given over into the hands of their enemies because of their unfaithfulness. And the pattern of this period was that when the time of servitude came, when these foreign overlords oppressed them, then the people would groan, they would cry out to the Lord, the Lord would raise up a judge for them in pity on account of their groaning, seems that often the groaning was simply that. It wasn't true repentance, but it was a groaning and a crying out to the Lord, wanting the pain and the hardship to go away, and the Lord was merciful. He would grant them a deliverer to rescue them from the hand of the particular nation that was oppressing them at that time. He would show them mercy, but then what happened? That mercy was trodden underfoot. It was trodden underfoot in that they did not listen to their judges, we read in verse 17. And according to verse 19, when that judge would die, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following these other gods. And that only led to further problems, as verse 20 and following enumerate. The Lord would no longer drive out the nations before them, those nations which the Lord had test, uh, had left behind to test Israel. Israel had failed the test, and so they no longer received the Lord's help in driving them out. The Lord allowed those nations to remain And as such, he left them that the people might be taught war and tested as to whether they would obey the Lord, as we find in chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 4. And though at first glance those two things uh, might appear to be uh, rather different things, nevertheless they are closely related. For the art of war in ancient Israel is not only the art of handling the sword and spear and shield, But the art of war in ancient Israel also involved godliness. The hand of the Lord would be with his godly ones in battle and would be against the ungodly. And so we read the Lord's words to Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, 6 and 7. He says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which... Moses, my servant, commanded you, and do not turn from it, to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. So success in the undertaking of driving out the nations was intimately connected with godliness, with obedience, with devoting oneself to the law. And on the flip side, the Lord's words in uh, Deuteronomy 32 reflect his attitude toward the unfaithful. In battle. And so the Lord says, How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? So, as a general rule, the success of their military effort was dependent upon their faithfulness to the Lord. The rule was not infallible, and we certainly see exceptions to this, like Psalm 44, where the nation had been godly and yet had suffered defeat, and on occasion also, the Lord, in his mercy, gave victory to rather ungodly portions of the Israelites. But nevertheless, one part of successful warfare generally involved the faithfulness of the people. And so, as we as we think about this, this history and the, the lessons that arise from it, let's consider three things that, that arise from these verses. First, the progression of sin. Secondly, the mercy of God. And thirdly, the purpose of our warfare. We've got the progression of sin, the mercy of God, and the purpose of our warfare. So first, the progression of sin. If sin is undealt with, it gets worse as time goes by. We're told about this generation here who does not know the Lord, his saving acts, and then unsurprisingly, they forsake the Lord and run headlong into idolatry. And then comes the punishment, the nations with whom they had joined themselves, are appointed to punish them. And even when they get some taste of the truth that it is evil and bitter to forsake the Lord, it seems that their hearts are not truly moved by all of the trouble that they end up facing. They don't listen to their judges. And when their judges are gone, they do even worse. This is how sin works. It appears to be lovely, it appears to be relevant, it appears to be right in its way. We may perhaps look with the greatest revulsion upon the crass idolatry of these nations and the idolatry into which Israel was taken in, but it would probably appear a little bit differently to those Israelites who were alive then and there. They had more or less made peace with these nations who were worshipping these gods. They had intermarried with them. The idolaters are now no longer your enemies... The idolaters are now your wife, your in-law, the grandparents of your children. The idolaters are now their neighbors and their family members. And when you add to this the fact that the sinful and fleshly indulgences, which were part and parcel of their idolatrous practice, was very appealing to the flesh. And so you've got, you've got earthly connections who are who are wrapped up in this stuff. It appeals to... The sinful flesh. And since they didn't know the Lord, there's nothing really to stop them from throwing themselves headlong into the idolatry of the nations. And this is the way sin works. It appeals to us in various ways. And once someone yields to it, there's then a bondage that occurs. As our Lord put it in John eight thirty four: truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Or as we read Earlier tonight from Romans 6, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in judgment? We begin to sin, and then sin becomes our master. And this is God's righteous judgment. That's when someone follows this course, they are given over to their sin, and then they are given over to greater And greater sin. This is the downward progression that is explained to us in the latter half of Romans chapter 1. And even when we understand that we are suffering, so often people refuse to turn from their sin. Such is the bondage of sin. And even when a deliverer appears, often there is merely a desire for deliverance from the pain or deliverance from the consequences of the sin, but not deliverance from sin itself. And you and I need to understand here that but for the grace of God, this pattern that was lived out by them in Judges 2 would be lived out by all of us as well. Apart from the grace of God, we are at heart no different from them. Since this is the way that sin works, the corresponding lesson is this, as we find in Romans 13, verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Sin is bad news all the way around. The way to avoid it is not by our own, our own weak efforts, but rather to put on Christ, to take up the weapons which he gives to us, to wait upon him, to trust in him, to rely upon the Spirit, and in the, that strengthening to obey the Lord. And we'll speak more of this warfare of ours here in a few moments. But notice, secondly here, the great mercy Of the Lord. We read here how the Lord heard the groanings of the people, and even when it seems like they didn't truly repent of their sins, nevertheless, the Lord was kind and was merciful to them when he heard their groaning. Just as he had heard the groaning of the children of Israel in Egypt, he was merciful to them and also merciful to the people during the period of the judges. He remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac and Jacob when he delivered them from Egypt. So also the Lord was merciful to his groaning people when they were groaning under oppression in the promised land. The Lord heard them. He was, in the words of 18, moved to pity by their groaning. And in the words of verse 16, he raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Now notice in this that the Lord's kindness in raising up these judges was purely an act of mercy. There was no righteous deserving on the part of the Israelites for these deliverers or these judges. They didn't deserve deliverance at all. But the Lord is merciful. He acted in mercy and pity toward his people in raising up these judges. And this is the way the deliverance always works. God's deliverance is always a gracious deliverance. The Israelites of old never deserved it, but time after time the Lord in his mercy would raise up these judges or later on give victories to the kings or even in bringing back the nation from the Babylonian exile. It was always a merciful intervention. It was never earned. It was never deserved. And so it is also in the coming of our great deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. His coming and the deliverance which he accomplished for his people was all of mercy. No one deserved it. Rather, the Lord had made a promise in his grace that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. The Lord had promised to bless all the nations of the world, and he has done so in the sending of his son. And so in Luke chapter 1, as Zacharias was was prophesying about the work of Christ, and what was about to take place now that his son, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, had been born. Zacharias spoke at length about this. Why don't we just flip there to Luke chapter 1 and see what Zacharias had to say about the coming of Christ. And notice as we read through this, the emphasis that Zacharias makes on the Lord's mercy and on the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant. This is Luke 1, beginning in verse 68. Zacharias said, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel.'" to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on to before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. You notice there in Zacharias' words, there's no, no hint that we deserve this. God's doing this because we're so good. He's pointing back to the promises of God, the oath, the covenant. He's pointing back to the mercy of God. And he's very explicit that we don't deserve this when he mentions in verse 77 that the Lord is going to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. These people are sinners. Their deliverance is all an act of mercy. And in connection with this also, we need to learn from this sad history of the people of Israel. said in verse 17 that they did not listen to their judges. They quickly turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. And so these deliverers were used by God to rescue the people, and they also taught the people. But the problem was the people did not listen. They didn't listen, and they went back and repeated their failures and their folly and their sins. And if we imitate them in that, if we just groan and cry out for deliverance but refuse to listen, To the Deliverer, we can expect the same fate as overtook them, which was a continual plunge into wickedness, leading to affliction, culminating in judgment. And thus Peter tells us in Acts 2.23, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet, speaking of Christ, shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. Every soul that does not listen to Jesus will be destroyed God's deliverance of his people in Christ is merciful, but if you refuse to listen to Christ, if you refuse to submit to him and obey him, the deliverance which Christ has accomplished on the cross will do you absolutely no good at all. Jesus calls us in John 15 to abide in him. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is as a branch who is thrown away and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove yourselves to be my disciples. Abiding in Christ means having his words abide in us. That implies us obeying Christ's words. And if Christ's words do not abide in us, then we're branches that are thrown away, that are dried up and burned. Jesus is the great deliverer. Let's listen to him. Let's submit to him. And that brings us then to the third point, which is the purpose of our warfare. The Lord had left the surrounding nations to test the Israelites as to whether they would keep the ways of the Lord and walk in it, as we find in chapter 2, verse 22, to test them as to whether they would keep his commands, the way it's expressed in chapter 3, verse 4. And then we find in chapter 3, verse 2, that they were left so that the Israelites might be taught war. And... As Christians here in this world, we find ourselves in a parallel situation. We are left by Christ in the world to serve him and his cause and to grow into his likeness. The life that we live as believers is one in which we are tested. And so Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7, Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the uh, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here in this world, we are in a season of testing. A season in which we encounter various trials of living in a sinful world. We encounter various temptations, various heartaches, various hardships. Fill in the blank. Whatever your particular Temptation, struggle, trial, hardship, whatever, you fill in the blank. We've all got them. This is not particularly easy. It's not particularly pleasant. But nevertheless, we are told by James, James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the testing is part of God's design and plan for us. We're to consider it all joy when we encounter these various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And so, how does this testing benefit us? How does it, how does it help us? Paul gives us a picture of how this works in Romans 5, 3-5, through where he says, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so Paul says it's not just that we endure these trials, Paul says we exult in these tribulations. And that's not easy, but let's, let's look at why. Why does he say we should do this? We do this because of what these things accomplish for us. What is it that they accomplish? Tribulations, he says, brings perseverance, that is to say endurance, a sticking to it when the going gets tough. And this then changes us. What does, uh, what does this perseverance bring about? It brings about proven character. In other words, after you have stood your ground by persevering through some trial, your character gets proven and you develop a certain hardiness. You're strengthened by the grace of God, worked in you by the Holy Spirit, and this then Produces hope, he says. Produces hope because, as now one with a proven character, having walked through some measure of trial and tribulation, you can see and sense how God has been walking with you and working within you. You can see how, out of weakness, you were made strong by Him, and thus how your hope is increased. Your confidence in God is, is strengthened because of the way in which he has enabled you to stand in the midst of that tribulation. And you also already have a down payment, assuring you that your hope is not in vain, because the love of God has been poured out within your heart by the Holy Spirit. This is why we endure tribulation. This is why we should even rejoice in tribulation, because it is in this way that we are built up, we're strengthened, and are established in the faith. We are in this way taught to war, and we benefit from the war. God makes us holy in this way and prepares us for his presence. This is the purpose of our warfare. And so let's step up and fight, not in our own strength, but in the Lord's. Let's pray. My Father, we see a very sad picture painted before us, In this text of Judges chapter 2, Lord, we ask for your mercy, that you would deliver us from such sinful hearts. Lord, we know that our hearts unchecked are as sinful as theirs, that we're capable of any sin that is described in this chapter and even capable of worse. Lord, we ask for your mercy and grace to be upon us. We pray that we would listen to Christ who is our great deliverer who's delivered us from sin and satan and death lord we pray that our hearts would always be inclined to him that we would listen to him that we would honor him and love him and lord we pray that you would strengthen us in the days of our warfare here on earth we pray lord that we would count it all joy when we encounter these trials that we would see your purpose in them and even though we may not understand in the moment how the trial is bringing about this good result Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust you, even when we can't see it. And we praise you for your grace and your goodness in all of these things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.